issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Sally, Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, tell one friend you think might like it too. And if you've already told that friend, tell them again. You can also get additional commentary on this episode and other news of the day by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com slash news now before we get into the meat of the episode i would like to send a special shout out to the state of wyoming in the last three years of doing ydhty wyoming has been one tough customer and has remained a an empty void in my analytics in the map of the united states but this week a good citizen of wyoming rose up listen to YDHTY. So thank you very, very much for doing so. And if you were just traveling there and downloaded it and you're from some other place, it still counts. You can't take it back. Now, moving on. During last week's conversation with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, we learned that President Biden's executive action would add to the deficit and potentially increase inflation while doing nothing to make colleges more affordable for the average American. And this begs the question, why is college so expensive in the first place? Well, to help figure this out, I spoke with David Feldman, professor of economics at William and Mary University and the author of two books, Why Does College Cost So Much? and The Road Ahead for America's Colleges and Universities, the focus of which is on the drivers behind the costs of education and what the future state might be. In this episode, we learn how a rise in the cost of education can sometimes be a good sign for the economy and how the cost of education right now is really only rising for some people. It'll make sense after you listen. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. When I read your paper, and my stupid dog will not stop barking, so he's just going to have a cameo on this episode. But when I started, when I read your paper first and foremost, it sent my blood pressure down numerous, numerous degrees because I have four children. I've done the whole drag the spreadsheet exercise to figure out exactly what I'd be paying for college over the course of four years for all of them. And the end result was I can't possibly make enough money to pay that. And so the pay, your paper, which I'll reference in the show notes, does a lot to explain the mechanics behind the cost of education and what people actually pay. And I want to elaborate on that. But before we get into the details, to frame this for the listener, can you talk about how the rate of inflation for education compares with that of the overall economy? Uh, yes. The, the key thing to realize is that there's a big difference between education, whether it's higher or lower, and say manufacturing automobiles or steel or producing goods on farms or digging ores out of the ground. Higher education is a personal service. And the price of personal services has tended over long stretches of time, not every year, but over long stretches of time, the price of personal services <clears throat> tends to rise more rapidly than the inflation rate. 
price of manufactured goods tends to go up more slowly than the inflation rate. And the overall inflation rate, whether you measure it as a CPI or a GDP deflator or one of our other measures of inflation, is an average of the two. So there's something fundamentally different about services that is causing the price of services to go up more rapidly than the inflation rate, and conversely, to cause the price of manufactured goods to go up more slowly than the rate of inflation. And the broad issue that's behind this is what is sometimes referred to as cost disease. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that it's not really a disease. Cost disease is driven by the very forces that are over long stretches of time making us, on average, have a higher standard of living. And the cause of cost disease is actually rising labor productivity uh, in the American economy. That's the stuff of higher living standards for the average person. So how does rising labor productivity, which is driven by technological progress, how does rising labor productivity make education, make its cost go up more rapidly than the inflation rate? Well, the answer is actually simpler than, than you might suppose. It's because in personal service industries, these industries, everything from higher education to child daycare to, to dining out at, at, at restaurants to apartment rents, uh, all of these personal services require inputs to produce them. In education, the primary input is labor. It's much easier to get labor productivity to go up in making a ton of steel. And in fact, if you look at the, the data, um, the amount of labor hours that, it's, that it takes to produce a ton of steel is only about 25% of what it was in 1960. We have figured out how to make increasing amounts of steel with the same amount of labor. That's labor productivity growth. Mm. We haven't figured out how to make a 120 person class as good as a 15 person class. Mm. We haven't figured out and say child daycare, would you favor the daycare center that put cram the most number of kids per caregiver? Oh, no, absolutely not. But that would be the most that would be the daycare center that the high, had the highest labor productivity mm -hmm. because labor productivity would be kids per caregiver. And you could get more labor productivity by steadily increasing the number of kids per caregiver. But that's not real labor productivity because real labor productivity doesn't lower the quality of what you're buying. Real labor productivity is an increase in output per labor hour, holding quality constant or raising quality. In personal services, it's very hard to get labor productivity growth, but we still have to buy our inputs in the same markets that firms that can experience labor productivity are working in. The, the higher labor productivity in the steel industry helps offset their rising costs. We don't have that in education, so our costs tend to go up relative, McKeating is relative, relative to manufacturing. But the thing that's causing costs to go up in the service industries is rising labor productivity in the steel industry. That was one of the most interesting things I saw in your paper, which, and I'll share this graph in the show notes for those of you who are listening to this. If you look at the rise in the cost of education, it consistently goes up from the end of World War II until sometime in the you know, 60s, 70s, and so on. And it kind of hovers until you get to the 80s and it starts going up again. And, and to make sure I understand it correctly, one of the things you cite is that that leveling off wasn't really a good thing. That leveling off was actually a result of declining productivity in the economy, correct? Or flat productivity. flat productivity. There was very little productivity growth. We sometimes refer to the 1970s as the decade of lost productivity mm -hmm. growth. 
and and that was for many reasons. One of which were two massive oil price shocks that that rendered a substantial fraction of the nation's capital stock as obsolete in need of replacement. So I mean, the seventies were a, a, a bad decade for for a wide variety of things. But I would point out there are other reasons why college cost tends to rise more rapidly than the inflation rate. And they're also not necessarily nefarious or, or bad things. One is the fact that in comparison to most industries, um, higher education is dominated not just by labor costs, but by highly educated labor costs. If you rank industries by the fraction of their labor force that has a college degree, um, higher education is an all education. Education is way up at the top, along with aerospace engineering. You know, mm-hmm. These are industries where the fraction of the labor force that's highly educated is very high. You get down to auto manufacturing, it's like 35%. You get down to construction, and it's 11% or lower. There's a range of education intensity of American industries. And we're up at the top. Well, what's happened to the return to highly educated labor since ooh, around the very early 1980s? You know? No. Yes. Well, if you look at the returns to a college degree, yeah. they bottomed out in the 1970s. Back in the, back in the 60s and the, and the early 70s, uh, the premium that someone with a college degree earned over someone with a high school degree uh, was only about 40 to 45 percent. That premium is now at least a factor of two today. Uh, and if you don't look at the average premium, if you look at the premium for somebody who's a little better than average, it's much bigger. And the premium gets even bigger if you get a graduate degree. People with master's degrees and PhDs uh, earn an even bigger premium uh, um, than people with just a college degree. So the gap in earnings between somebody with a degree and somebody without a degree between 1981 and about the Great Recession, 2005, 6, 7, 8, uh, that gap just ballooned. Well, that makes the cost of any industry whose employment base is primarily highly educated go up relative to, say, construction, where most workers are not educated. So that's a second force driving the cost of some personal services upward. So return to an education has risen. And, and I want to pause there. So is it fair to say then by that, that even though the cost was consistently rising and the cost was outpacing inflation, that from the 1980s until about the Great Recession, that investment actually made sense in terms of long-term earning power. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, once again, for the average student, mm. one of the problems we have in, in, in higher education is, well, people get hung up on averages, but people are not averages. They're themselves. Mm-hmm. So the average return to this day uh, uh, for going to college is huge. The average return is huge. Not for everyone. There are people who uh, go to college for one year, uh, maybe two, drop out. The experiment didn't work for them. Uh, they've given up two years of time. Uh, they borrowed maybe $20,000. They have no credential to show for it. And for them, higher education ex post uh, what was a mistake. And, and we have to acknowledge that um, that that. Uh, uh, people do make mistakes, and not every investment in higher education pays off. On average, it pays off handsomely. The increment to earnings that the average college degree recipient gets over the course of their lifetime in today's dollars, um, you know, is is three hundred thousand to a million, depending upon uh, what field you choose, how good you are at it. 
But on average, the, 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 the payoff, if you wanted to calculate it as an ROI, the return on investment, and many economists have actually done that, uh, the average return on going to college uh, pays off a heck of a lot better than the average return in the stock market, meaning it's a very good return. Since we're talking about averages here, another part of your paper that I found really interesting was the average cost of tuition. So that is the average amount a pupil paid to attend a college or to, to get a higher education versus the list price. And to explain this to the listener, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but when you look at the, the inflation of the list price over the course of the last couple of decades, it's been substantial. If you look at the rate of inflation on the average price somebody pays to get a higher education, that's actually remained flat when adjusted, when adjusted for inflation or more or less flat. Am I correct there? Yeah. If you look, but first of all, you have to break the sector down into its components. Yeah. Forget the for profits. I can brag on them later. Yeah. But if you look at the non the nonprofits, the public universities and the private nonprofit liberal arts colleges and research universities, everything from you know Harvard to Ferrum, if you look at the, the private sector and the, the, the private nonprofits, the public nonprofits. Uh, over the uh, over the course of the 21st century, the net and let's just back off and say list price, net price. List price is the sticker price that's what's published in the catalog. Net price or average net price is what the average student actually pays. Um, these two have diverged substantially. Mm -hmm. This price has continued to rise more rapidly than the rate of inflation. Net price has risen a tiny bit more rapidly than inflation, but almost insignificantly. The, in today's dollars, the average net price of attending a private college is around 32000 In at the beginning of the decade, or 2005, six before the before the meltdown, it was about 32,000. It really hasn't changed at all in in real dollars. Uh, at public universities, it's gone up. I think from 17,000 to 19,000. Right, that is an increase, and, and there are reasons why the price at a public average public net price at a public university has gone up more than the net price at a private university. First of all, people think that's surprising, but the reason it has to do with their funding sources. Mm -hmm. Public universities yeah. are connected by an umbilical of some sort to state legislatures, which have been over long stretches of, since the 1980s, the real amount of money that legislatures appropriate per student and it is lower today than it was in 1985. Mm. And, and, and so cost is easy. Real cost goes up. Public universities either have to get the extra revenues to keep their quality constant from students or the quality has to go down. And unfortunately, at private public universities, both of those are happening. Mm. We're getting more from students and their quality is going down. But the, the net price has gone up a small amount at public universities. It's gone up almost nothing at private universities. The increase is lower than the rate of growth of real income in the country per capita. In other words, it's the, on average, college is not less affordable. Mm -hmm. and for certain individuals, for certain groups, it is. And we can talk about that. Definitely. So explain why it is then that universities are consistently increasing their list price, but obviously not charging the average student that price once they're enrolled. There are a number of reasons. The overarching reason, and I can be flip and say, because they can. <laughs> but then I need to explain what I mean by that. The overarching reason is 
because of what has happened to the distribution of income in the United States. If you look at the incomes of families in the top 5% of the national income distribution, and I will send along a figure uh, that calculates the, um, uh, the incomes of people at different rungs of the income ladder, the 20th percentile, the 40th, the 60th, the 80th, the 95th. You could do it for the top one or 2% if you want. But then the diagram would get funny looking because it would just, you know, shoot off the top yeah. of the people in the top 1%. But look at the top 5%. Families that are the 95th percentile of the income distribution have seen their incomes soar mm-hmm. over the past 50 years. Families at the, in, at the 20th percent of the income distribution have seen very little movements in their income. At best, it's a few thousand dollars. Families in the, the 95th percentile have seen their income rise by almost $200,000 in real dollars over the past 50 years. So the, the bulk of the gains from productivity growth in the economy overall have gone to families in say, the top quarter of the American income distribution, and especially to the top five or two or one percent of the mm-hmm. income distribution. So the capacity to pay has risen for families of high income. And a family today that's at the 95th percentile of the income distribution makes around a quarter of a million dollars a year. The fam- a family in the 98th percentile, the top 2%, makes something north of $400,000 a year. So for the most part, these are not families that look like America. Mm-hmm. These are exceptional families. But the list price tuition at most private universities is determined by people with the greatest capacity to pay because these are families that get the smallest or in some cases, no discount. So does somebody actually wind up paying those soaring list price tuition? Yes, somebody does wind up paying, but it tends not to be families with median incomes. It tends to be families with top 5% or top 2% incomes. So an interesting fact is if, if if I tell you, if I ask you, those list price tuitions that seem crazy, you know, Sarah Lawrence charging $75,000 list price tuition. What fraction of students at America's private colleges actually pay the full list price? You got to tell me this one. It's less than 10%, less than one in 10. Really? And the average discount is in the neighborhood of 50%, five zero. I'm, I'm just going to pause here for the listener. If you were wondering why this paper lowered my blood pressure, it is because, and I'll share this again, I'll share this graph in the show notes, it is because that net cost per student is actually so much lower. So even though you have 60, 70,000, $80,000 tuitions in some cases per year, the cost is very infrequently paid by the average person. America does not go to Princeton, right? Yeah. But Princeton and places like that garner way more of content discussion in the national media. So with Princeton and its $75,000 tuition, if you're, if you come from a family making $60,000 a year, what is the cost to attend Princeton? If you're making $60,000 a year, it's free. Really? Not a penny, no room, no board, no tuition. They pay the entire thing. You go for free. Well, of course you got to be good enough to get into Princeton. And that, that kind of brings up the, the other point, which is that my understanding is that that gap or that gap between the list price and the net student price is 
effectively given out in the form of financial aid. So again, in print, let's just take Princeton, for example. In Princeton, the people who are paying the full amount for tuition are effectively subsidizing a number of lower income students who aren't able to pay that full ride. Am I correct? Actually not. Okay. Actually not. Here's the interesting. Remember, schools like Princeton have immense endowments. Okay. So if you you, you look at the full price payer at Princeton, the family making, you know, the, the scion of some family fortune, family makes $10 million a year and they pay the full price to Princeton, stroke a check and it's pocket change. That family has just paid Princeton $80,000 a year. Turns out Princeton is spending $130,000 a year to produce the education that that student receives. In other words, that student is receiving a $50,000 a year subsidy from Princeton, even though wealthiest families, every student at the nation's most uh, well-endowed institutions is receiving a subsidy. The subsidy is biggest for low-income students because Princeton cuts the price to zero. Once again, this is not where America goes to school. If you look at, um, uh, you look further down the pecking order, the discounts tend to be smaller and the problems begin to mount for certain families in certain income ranges. I do not want your listeners to think that there are no problems in higher education. There are affordability issues in higher education, but they are complicated and they are not well understood by looking at this price. Mm. You have to look at average net price by institution and then break it down, not talk about the average. What does a family that makes between X and Y pay to go to school Z? That's a much more complicated issue. And the problem with our system, we have multiple different buckets of money. And first of all, some of the aid money comes from the federal government. That's Pell Grants, right? That's, that's a separate category. Some of the aid money comes from the schools themselves. We call these institutional discounts. Mm -hmm. uh, you might call them scholarships, you know, but they're institutional discounts. Institutional discounts are today the biggest source of aid money. They're much bigger than Pell Grants, much bigger than state-based financial aid that goes to students that go to school in the state. The single biggest source of aid is from the schools themselves in the form of tuition discounts. But different schools discount tuition differently and for different purposes. Princeton largely discounts to sculpt the freshman class, to make it the best possible class they can achieve. Private colleges that are not rich, like Princeton, use tuition discounting for different reasons. They use it to make ends meet. The airline model of, of pricing, different students pay different prices, and it's designed to help that school hit a revenue target so that they can continue to exist and, and offer an education of a, of a roughly given quality. Mm. So the, the schools that... That's why it's complicated. Yeah. So the, the schools that are like effectively then if we look at the most elite institutions, they don't necessarily have a funding problem per se. They're not worried about how they're going to keep the lights on for the next hundred years. But if you go a tier down from that, not at all. Yeah. So if you go a tier down from that though, it sounds like that's really where you have this sort of discount trading where effectively like we're going to attract a certain number of students who can pay the list price. And we're going to take that money. And we're going to use that to give discounts to attract other students who can add value to the student body. Correct. And in fact, if you go even further down the pecking order, there are minimally selective private colleges. If you look at America's private colleges, the bulk of them are small. Most private colleges have student bodies of 500 to 2,000, and there are 1,000 of them. And then, of course, we have the Princetons and the, of the research universities, and we have the Overlands and Kenyans and Swarthmore's, you know, Mills College, the high-quality 
well, reasonably well-endowed liberal arts colleges. But if you look at the minimally selected private colleges, and there are lots of them, there are perhaps a thousand minimally selective liberal arts colleges that have 600, 1200 students. Many of these schools, the list price is a complete fiction. You know, there'll be a list price of $32,000. Nobody pays it. Absolutely nobody pays it. Every student gets a discount because you see a, a scholarship is a marketing tool. Your family gets a $12,000 scholarship. That sounds nice, right? Sounds a lot better than, well, we'll cut the price for yeah. $12,000. So many schools give these kinds of discounts to every student. Then you have to scratch your head and say, why don't we do this? Why don't they just lower the list price? Well, you want to know one of the dirty secrets? Many of these schools give students a scholarship that is fixed in nominal dollars. They're giving you a $12,000 scholarship. And then between your freshman and sophomore year, they raise the fictitious list price by $1,000. Mm. But they keep your scholarship constant. So they extract another $1,000 from the family. So as you go through the school, the net cost to you gets ratcheted up each year. Mm. Mm. And this is part of how they make ends meet. We've gone through a lot here. So I want to I summarize everything. And then I want to jump to my next question, which is, you know, effectively, there are a couple of things at work here. You know, first and foremost is the fact that the cost to produce a high quality education consistently goes up. You cannot increase, you can't get productivity gains out of a university education. So to that respect, yes. the cost of that university education will always outpace the cost of inflation in, in, in manufactured goods, for example, or other, other places. Um, as long as we are in a, an environment of fairly rapid overall national labor productivity, productivity growth, growth. Yeah. we're not in. in the and then, you know, part two of that is that even though that list price goes up, the net price stays constant, more or less, when adjusted for inflation. And so to that respect, what the average person is paying is about the same. It's just what we see as the list price is rising exorbitantly. And, and a lot of that has to do with the economics of, of universities of maintaining a certain rate of per-pupil spending. And the publics, it has to do with cycles in funding from the state. Okay. There are periods in which the state, especially around recessions, there are periods in which states heavily slash appropriations for higher education. Mm -hmm. And you tend to see in the year or two after that surges in tuition mm -hmm. as schools try to claw back the, the lost revenue. And then the recession ends and the state starts to ratchet up funding again and the rate of growth of tuition ameliorates. And then the next recession hits and state funding falls and tuition goes up. The big rises in tuition have uh, uh, we're not in the past 15 years we were in the 1990s and early o's mm. when when the uh, those were years when 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 states were really reducing their contribution to yeah. higher education so people people can tell a story of soaring tuition but it's usually a, a story that has to go a little bit further back to the era when when uh, states were dramatically reducing their their um, appropriations yeah and we have two, there's something I want to get to here, which is, and I'll, I'll bucket universities into two groups, which is your highly selective universities. So that's the Princeton's, Harvard's, you know the names, and then the less selective universities, which are everybody else. And my understanding from reading your work is that a lot of lower income students who are exceptionally talented are opting or are self-selecting and are opting for less selective institutions because of what they view as the total cost. So they're effectively scared away 
by the cost of Princeton. And even though they might get in and not pay anything, they don't know that. And so they move away. And I, and I just, when I read that, I thought to myself, the goal of a university education or one of the big goals should be social mobility. It should be the ability to not have the income you're born into dictate the income you ultimately end up in as an adult. And I feel like that's a huge obstacle. Do you, do you agree with that one? I mean, is there evidence that that's having an impact? Oh, yes. There was a wonderful randomized control study done by Sarah Turner at the University of Virginia and, and Chris Avery and Caroline Hawksby at Stanford. They called it ECO, Expanding College Opportunities. And essentially, you've got, you've got two hypotheses. Do low-income, talented students mm-hmm. choose to stay close to home and attend colleges that aren't good matches for them? Mm-hmm. For positive reasons. Mm-hmm. It's a conscious choice. I know I could go to a more selected school that would probably cost less, but I need to stay home to help my family. Mm-hmm. Or I need to stay home because I, I value my community. Mm-hmm. Is that a conscious choice or is it based on lack of information? Mm-hmm. Those are two competing ideas. Yeah. So they, they created this randomized controlled study with thousands of, of people where they contacted students that they had identified as typical of lower income, but top 10% by test scores, um, back when we used test scores. Uh, you know, the, you know, students who are in the top 10% of the SAT score, but in the bottom quartile of the national income distribution, and sent them packets of information that looked really professional um, with a URL inside the packet of information and sheets that said, here are 100 schools that promise that you can apply for free. Um, they, they could have applied to those colleges for free anyway, mm-hmm. um, but they would have had to have buried themselves three layers deep in the school's webpage to learn that yeah. information. This packet basically laid out the whole the whole thing. They also had a control group that did not get the packet of information uh, that were answering questions about their college choices. And the students who received the packet of information were far more likely, and statistically significant, yeah. far more likely to apply to more resource-rich colleges on average than the students who didn't get the packet. Far more likely to get accepted by those schools and far more likely to say yes to those schools and actually attend, Um, which suggests that information barriers are a real problem. And it's hard to overcome those. We try. Uh, My own own institution, uh, William & Mary, which many people think of as a private liberal arts college, no, (laughs) we're a mid-sized public research university, is highly selective. University of Virginia is highly selective. If you look at uh, William & Mary, we have the highest in-state list price in the state of Virginia. For families making less than $30,000 a year, mm. we have the lowest net price mm. in the state of Virginia. In fact, for those students, we charge them zero. So like Princeton. Yeah. How many students in rural Virginia know this? Oh, non-quantitative analysis says 0.00%. Am I close? I suspect it's maybe 0.001%, right. but that would that would have to be something that the guidance counselors are very familiar with. And it would also have to be something that registered in the guidance counselor is something that they should advise their students to think about. Well, the communities that have these kinds of talented but low-income students also tend to be very underserved by quality guidance services. The information is a big problem because 
when you look at the higher education application process through to acceptance and enrollment, it's long. And when do students find out exactly what it will cost them to go? At the very end of the process. Mm -hmm. So there are significant information barriers. And we know that low-income students, especially low-income students in rural settings, wind up going to schools where they pay a higher net price and they're at institutions that are less well-resourced than institutions we know that they could have gotten into. That's a problem. I'm thinking aloud here. And again, we'll, we'll just use, we'll keep picking on Princeton because so far it's been, it's been fun. But, but so if I'm Princeton, ultimately what I want is I want a large, diverse student body that is exceptional. I want people who are going to go on and do exceptional things. And so I want to make sure I'm able to pick from the largest pool of talent I can. And it just seems to me like this pricing structure is handicapping that. It's making it more difficult for them to get the broadest possible talent pool because they're automatically excluding a large swath of the population. Do universities see this as a problem? Do they understand it and are they trying to address it or not? Uh that's, a, that's hard. I think the problem is actually more acute at schools not named Princeton mm. or Yale, because I think the idea that, 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 the, that the true elite, the Harvards, the Yales, the Stanfords, uh, bend over backwards for low-income students is increasingly permeating the public consciousness. Mm. And schools that have had less success at doing that are in the wrong gown from, from Princeton. Yeah. Uh, William and Mary and University of Virginia are rather well known in the state of Virginia. And we have trouble getting that point across to our constituents in the state, especially outside of the big urban areas. You know, William and Mary could fill its incoming class with well, well, with the students from wealthy families in Northern Virginia. We could easily fill our entire class, but it would not be a very diverse class of students, at least not, not income diverse, not geographically diverse. So we have to work really hard. We have to work harder than Princeton um, because the the notion that hey you're low income William Mary is free it just hasn't been as well spread into the general consciousness mm -hmm. as the idea that the Ivy League is really after you if you're smart. Yes. Okay. There's another thing I want to get to, which is we you know we've talked a lot about what drives the cost. Now the second part or the flip side of that is there are lots of popularly espoused theories about what the actual drivers are. And two, which I've ascribed to, and I'm interested in your comments on, are the, the Bennett hypothesis. And number two, the increasingly, <laughs> the increasingly, let's call it luxurious amenities that are offered at universities when compared to decades past. Let's start off with the Bennett hypothesis. The Bennett hypothesis effectively says that if you increase access to funding for education. So for example, if you allow students to take out debt to finance their education, that will remove the downward pressure on tuition prices and will allow universities to continue to charge higher and higher prices. You dispute that. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why? Yeah. The Bennett hypothesis basically says, come on, folks, this is Econ 101. And I have had people throw that at me. You're an economist and you don't understand supply and demand. <laughs> the idea is that things like the Pell Grant are a subsidy. Uh, and if you subsidize an activity, the demand for it goes up. If the demand for something goes up, up goes the price. You know, it's you know, supply and demand. Yeah. It's really simple. 
And of course, I look back at them and I say, do you think um, maybe higher education doesn't fit the assumptions of perfect competition? Oops, this is not a perfect competitive industry. In the textbook, supply and demand, uh, perfect competition. Perfect competition has buyers and sellers fully informed, perfect information. What did we just discuss about students not knowing enough information about the cost of college to make a cogent choice? This is an industry where information problems are rife. People are not fully informed. Uh, you know, that, that, that's just one problem. Are colleges and universities atomistic competitors? No. Uh, every college in, in university, or most colleges and universities, have a, have a peer group that they compete against, that maybe five, six, eight schools, mm -hmm. primarily. Yeah. In fact, the schools that are more competitive are places like Harvard. Uh, but most schools are, are regional. They don't have national audiences. They have local, regional, state, maybe slopping across state borders. Yeah. So there's only a handful of schools that they're real competitors. This is not a perfectly competitive market. Now, having said that, ultimately, whether increases in federal subsidy raise tuition, that's an empirical question. Mm -hmm. There have been some very good studies using very good causal methodologies um, to examine situations where if there were a Bennett effect, it should have shown up in spades. Robert Kelchin in Tennessee has studied the impact changing federal loan limits on things like law school prices. Mm -hmm. in, in, I think, 2006, the caps on borrowing went off. So students could just suddenly borrow tremendous amounts more. Well, if that were the case, you would expect that schools would have jacked up law tuitions in response to students being able to having all of a sudden this well of extra credit. The impact was essentially zero. Mm -hmm. And he went back and studied it for business school and medical school and other things and, and found essentially no impact whatsoever. Other studies have shown that it really matters what segment of the industry we're talking about. Turns out that the most powerful evidence in favor of the Bennett hypothesis, extra subsidy, higher tuition, comes from the nation's for-profits. Mm. At public universities, best estimates I've seen is that when things like Pell Grants go up, public universities do not raise tuition. In fact, they let the Pell Grant flow through to the students in the form of a lower net price. Mm -hmm. Crucially, the effect of increases or changes in federal subsidy depend crucially on what part of the industry you're looking at. And many of the early studies that found a benefit effect did not adequately look at the actual price setting mechanisms at various kinds of schools. Prices are set differently at public universities, there's a state legislature involved, than at private universities where they're discounting. Does the for-profits discount? No, not really. It's the sector that is most supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And to add some color to that as well, there are two things I wanna cite. You know, First is you're talking about all universities not being equal and not having an exact like-for-like -like competition. A great example you cited was Oberlin, which has one of the most prestigious music conservatories in the country. If I'm a world-class cellist, I'm not going to go to, I'm not going to choose a cheaper university based on cost entirely. I'm going to be looking at the, at again, the service or quality of service uh, provided. And the second mm -hmm. one, and in my estimation, if that hypothesis were true, the net cost would go up. You would expect that people at lower incomes would actually right. take on more debt because they need to. And we don't see that. I want to get into amenity competition because this is one that 
works my last nerve. So I'll give a little background. I said this in the last episode. My oldest son is going to school, going to college in out of state tech. I mean, it's New England. So out of state is like one block that way. But but at any rate, you know, he's going to school out of state. I write the check and, you know, that's fine and everything. But then he tells me how like, oh, yeah, we have sushi Sundays and we have this. We have that. I'm like sushi Sundays. I'm fine writing a check for education. I'm expecting peanut butter sandwiches at the cafeteria. And you're saying that in terms of, again, that net price, that doesn't have a lot of upward pressure, correct? Well, um, I'm saying two things. Does amenity competition likely push up uh, the the net cost on average? Yeah, it probably does. The empirical question is, how much is a main driver? And it's not. It plays a big part. I like to break this issue down into a, a couple of components. You probably would not like your son to experience the dining experience I had at Kenyon College in the 1970s, mm-hmm. where school picnic, I remember walking by and looking at the box of hamburgers that they were you know, opening up to toss on the grill, and the grade that was on it said edible. Okay. I'll, I'll never forget watching that. Dorms are better now than they were 40 years ago. Well, on average, mm-hmm. there, there are some dorms that are still in use that were in use 40 years, years ago. We, William Mary, we have some from the 20s. They've been modernized. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the footprint of the building, you can only do so much with it. But our new dorms, <clears throat> the square footage is higher. The number of bathrooms per student, or students per bathroom. Students per bathroom is lower. Mm-hmm. Bathrooms per student is higher. They have lounges. The buildings are nicer. They're prettier. They have study areas. You know, they're all wired or they're all wireless or whatever. They're better buildings. The quality has gone up. What's happened to the size of the average American's home over the past 50 years? It's gone up. What's happened to the size of the average American's apartment? It's gone up. The amenities in these homes and apartments. Why is that? Well, because the standard of living on average in the United States is three times higher today than it was in 1960. Why would you expect, you know, sort of a curmudgeonly grandfather way? Mm-hmm. They have it easier than I did. Oh, okay. Um, I, I would be shocked if the quality of the amenities of colleges and universities had stayed static while the quality of amenities in American life had gotten much better. The question is not, are the amenities better? The question is whether they are excessive. Mm. And there is actually good argument that they may be a little excessive. And, and once again, this is on average. You're, you're not going to find it at every college. But the reason why they might be a little excessive is because schools are in an intense, this is, I'm not talking about Princeton, other schools, schools that don't, they aren't as rich as God, are in an intense competition for students from the top of the income distribution who have the capacity to pay the full price and therefore help subsidize others so that the quality of the overall class can be better than it would be if they just had rich kids. So the kinds of amenities that schools shoot for are not the amenities that appeal to the average student at the school. They appeal to the somewhat better off student. So in that sense, the quality of the amenities may be too high. But of course, as very democratic institutions, we don't have first and second class tickets. If the school builds a new athletic facility with a rock climbing wall, by the way, they're very cheap. When the school builds a new facility like that, they don't only admit wealthy students to that facility. It becomes a common, a common good of all students. And in fact, when you look at the cost of these nice facilities, most schools, these are auxiliary enterprises. 
it has to be built into the fee structure somewhere. And the fee, the fee structure to put up a $50 million new facility in a school with 30,000 students is something like $25 a year per student. It's not the reason why college costs have gone up so much. It is a contributor, it is a small contributor, and it gets an overwhelmingly, almost obscene amount of attention. Yeah, I think if I'm to draw a thread through everything we've talked about today, it seems to me like when we talk about the problem of the high cost of education, this is really a story about income inequality. And it's really a story about universities' efforts to recruit people who can pay that full list price so that the 98% can afford to go to school. I suspect that if the income distribution of the United States today looked like the income distribution of the United States in 1955, we would be having a very different conversation about the affordability of higher education and the problems of the American higher education system. But we haven't, schools haven't created a highly unequal distribution of income. Whole host of factors having to do with the way technology, the way technological change occurs and, and the public policies that we have in place have given rise to this problem. And a lot of what the government is doing and what schools are doing is reactive to that. To a certain extent, when you see tuition discounting at places like Princeton or, or places like William Mary, when you see tuition discounting, it is schools, in a sense, doing what governments do, trying to undo some of the effects of increasing income inequality to create access for students of lower incomes. One of the key things to realize is we've experienced a three or four million student decrease in attendance over the past five years. Even, it even predates COVID. Enrollment is beginning to fall. This has nothing to do with the demographic, quote unquote, cliff. It's not really a cliff. But this has nothing to do with the demographic cliff. This has to do with a wide range of of things that are not perfectly well understood, but take it as given. But there are a few million fewer students in, in higher education today than there were a few years back. But if you look over the past 40 years, enrollment in higher education has soared, not just in raw numbers, but in percentages of high school graduates who seek out a post-secondary education. Mm. Now, if you look by income, quintile, you know, the top 20%, the next 20%, if you look by income quintile, the top 20% of earners in the United States, their children have always attended college at high rates. And over the past 50 years, that rate has even grown, but it's grown from high to somewhat higher. The bulk of the growth in attendance at American institutions over the past generation have come from families in the bottom bottom to you know, the 20th and 40th percentiles of income. That's where a lot of the growth in enrollment is coming from. These students are more needy. That's part of the debt crisis. These students are, are needier. The Pell Grant hasn't kept up. So there's an increase in, in demand for borrowing. These students are by and large not flooding into Princeton. They are flooding into ill-resourced public community colleges and regionals. These are the schools that are under-resourced and have high dropout rates. These are the students that accumulate debt with no, no credential to show for it. So we have, this is, this is not just a problem of rising income inequality. It's a problem of the increased enrollment of, of lower income students at a time when the universities that serve them are increasingly resource starved 
and public policies have not kept pace. So this is behind things like you know, the, the uh, administration's current plan for loan forgiveness, which is, I think, a step in the right direction, but largely a Band-Aid on a much broader set of problems. So what are, then if, if this is the case, how do we fix this? You want that in five minutes? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, no, but this hour-long conversation has convinced you of anything, is that people who oversimplify what's going on in higher education are doing the nation a disservice. Yeah. So it's going to be really difficult. If there's no wand I can wave, yeah. if you do this, we've got the problem solved. There is no such wand. Public policy has a number of levers. And you know, they're tired of reading all the calls from both academics and, and, and newspapers well, states need to step up to the plate and, and, and refinance their higher education institutions. That's nice. Fine words, butter, no parsnips. Yeah. That's, that's not going to force changes in state policy when they've got K-12 to worry about, crumbling roads, infrastructure, prisons, Medicaid, and all of these other competing... What do we do? Well, I'm, I'm in the camp that thinks that uh, the federal government can do more with a, a bipartisan approach than just about any other institution in the United States. And that would happen if we were to do something other than make a marginal increase in the Pell Grant. Hmm. The Pell Grant is very well targeted. The problem with the Pell Grant is that it's a complex thing, and we can get into that. That's a separate issue. People have to fill out the FAFSA or its, yeah. its successor. Oh, I've done it. It's an information barrier. Yeah. But if we doubled the Pell Grant, we would begin to move back Toward the world we were in in the 1970s, when a BEOG, which is what it used to be called, Basic Educational Opportunities Grant, when a BEOG, the precursor to the Pell Grant, covered essentially the entire cost of attendance, not just tuition and fees, the entire cost of attendance at a respectable four-year public institution. We are now down to a situation where the Pell Grant does not even cover the average level of tuition and fees at a public institution, let alone room and board and other costs of attendance. Double the Pell Grant, we will, we will make a meaningful move back to being able to offer a basic educational opportunity grant. If we do that, lower income students will see their need for loans diminished dramatically. We kill two birds with one projectile here. Yeah. We reduce the needs for future borrowing and we create an entitlement, and that's what it is. So my friends on the right will, you know, quail with the word entitlement. <laughs> we, we create an entitlement that will signal to students that a basic education, a basic college degree is within their budget. Even if they don't have perfect information about net price to them, doubling the Pell Grant will send a broad national signal that education is affordable. But you can't easily do that if you don't also think about accountability. Because this is not cheap. You double the Pell Grant, you're going to be adding $50, $60 billion of, of spending. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact number. That, that may be off. Yeah. But it, it is not a trivial expenditure. Although it is in the grand scheme of the national budget, it's not a trivial expenditure. The public does have a right to expect that the funds are reasonably well used. And that's why doubling of the Pell Grant should also be coupled with meaningful attempts to hold institutional institutions accountable for how they use this, these funds. Sound of can of worms open. Mm-hmm. Accountability is a tough issue. Yeah. The, the current methods that we have are either too soft, easily ignored, or 
too confining. They, they, they cause schools to do silly things in order to be accountable. Mm -hmm. I'll mention two things. Number one is gainful employment. The Department of Education put out what are called gainful employment standards yeah. that hold schools for profits. And this is where the largest amount of the problem resides. Not all of it, yeah. but the largest amount. A gainful employment forced for profit institutions for each cohort of students. The, the, the debt to earnings ratio of their students ha had, had to be low enough within reasonable bounds. Mm -hmm. If the debt to earnings ratios for students were too high, they would be kicked out of. Five or four programs, meaning your students could no longer get loans or Pell Grants, which is effectively a death sentence. Any school that gets kicked out of Title IV goes bankrupt tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So these are knife edge policies. Wham, you're dead. Yeah. The other thing that we have is what's called the 90-10 rule. Schools not allowed to get more than 90% of their revenue from Title IV monies, from the from Pell Grants and, and student loans. This the idea here is that if a student and their family isn't willing to pony up their own money, mm -hmm i.e. skin in the game, program's not worth it. Yeah. For-profits have figured out how to skim right to the edge of that line. And many for-profits have 85 to 90% of their monies coming in from, from Title IV, and many of them actually have 98% of their monies because the GI Bill doesn't count. Okay. So these are the current ways that we, we deal with accountability. The other accountability is the federal government's college scorecard, um, where they publish information about schools. This is a pretty complicated thing, and there's not very good evidence that the college scorecard actually is a very good accountability measure. And I can send you the sites to that. So the problems we have, it's difficult to construct a sensitive accountability measure um, that actually gets schools to change their behavior. One possibility is uh, something that one of my friends uh, named Doug Weber at the Federal Reserve Board has advocated, which is called risk sharing. It puts schools on the hook mm -hmm. for a small percentage of student loan defaults. That, that could be a way of, of getting all schools to care about the quality of the education yeah. that they give their students. The risk of risk sharing is that it may induce schools not to take risks, mm -hmm. meaning not take on students who are risky. And we don't want that. We want, we want schools to take on risky students. Yeah. We just want them not to abuse those students by saddling them with overly high debt. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please consider leaving it a review and potentially traveling to Wyoming to listen to it again there. Thank you so much. I'll have links to David's book and study in the show notes, as well as an additional write-up on the subject on the newsletter you can sign up for on ydhty.com slash news. So where to begin? The increase in the cost of education should outpace that of inflation in the general economy. And this is usually a good sign as it means other sectors in the economy are becoming more productive. Keyword, usually. Now, while inflation in the service sector will outpace that of the overall economy, the inflation we see in today's market is more a reflection of rising income inequality. And with fewer students able to afford the cost of a higher education, colleges and universities have to rely on attracting students from wealthier families with things like rock climbing walls and yes, Sushi Sundays, I'm not letting that one go, 
So these people can attend the schools and bring up the average cost per student by paying list price. Now by itself, this might not be so terrible, except that the rising prices often scare away lower income students who might actually be able to afford more selective institutions that have better resources if they only knew what they were actually going to pay. And the result is a number of lower income students placing themselves in institutions that are already under strain. Now, one note here, David recommended doubling the Pell Grant as a potential reform, and it's worth noting that the government has spent an average of $30 billion a year on the program. The cost of student loan cancellation, as we learned last week, $60 billion a year. I will give you all time to do the math on that one. Uh, one last note. Did you notice, for the longtime listener, how the cost of education leveled off during the energy shock in the 1970s when rising oil prices reduced productivity and also by that a return on investment of a college education? It brought me back to the May 19th episode with Carrie King, who makes an interesting link between energy availability, prices, and the economy as a whole. So if you haven't listened to that one already, go back. It'll add a lot of color to the current state of affairs. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.